Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 13 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I hope you are having a great week. Thank you as always for tuning in every week and listening to the show. And uh, thank you for your support, for sharing it around on all the social media. I appreciate it and I love you forever. Interesting discussion going on on my Facebook page this week. My Facebook page is Nathan R. Seaward. And I asked if you thought I should include a woman on the podcast, having interviews with powerful women, because a lot of people have mentioned it to me, when are you going to have women on the show? Why don't you have women on the show? And I think every time you, you do something that is focused just towards one gender or just towards men, then inevitably you get some people feeling that that's excluding someone in some way. And I just wanted to clarify, I appreciate all your discussions. If you want to make a comment, that's a good place to go. I've pinned that uh, conversation to the top of my Facebook page. So if you want to make a comment on this, go and do it there. That's the best place. But I just wanted to clarify the reason I'm doing this podcast, and it's something you hear a lot of the guests on the show mention because I make a point of mentioning it to them. But the big thing that I'm passionate about is reducing the rate of male suicide in New Zealand. And it's pretty horrible statistics about that in New Zealand and it really breaks my heart but to make an impact in that even in a small way you've got to replace that with something so you have to replace the depression the hopelessness the uh, feelings of being alone with something else and so my contribution is this to have deep conversations with powerful men and really give men a place to come and tune in and you know podcasts are very intimate when you're listening it's usually by yourself you've got your headphones in you're out for a walk you're on the treadmill you're in your car driving home from work you're um, listening to this quietly before you go to sleep at night this is a very intimate conversation that you're participating in and that is very very valuable to men because the reason we have high rates of depression and suicide is because men are feeling isolated, they're feeling alone, they feel like um, for whatever reason there's no one they can talk to, it's hard to have these conversations in your own life, you feel weak if you um, you know, admit that you're struggling or you feel like you've failed in some kind of way. So these kind of issues that we're discussing in the podcast every week are issues that I think are really, really important for men but are sometimes hard for men to have in their own lives. So that's the purpose behind this show now the thing that's interesting is there are a lot of women that listen to this show and that was something that I hadn't thought of but the fact that men's issues clearly affect women as well so there's women that are listening in one just because the men that I interview are very very uh, inspirational and they're inspirational for everybody not just for men and two they want to get an insight into men's issues they want to understand uh, their husbands better I was talking to my sister um, Belinda and she's talking about how she wants to see you know some of these men's issues for her son let me tell you about my sister an incredible woman she's uh, a solo mother raising a gorgeous young a talented smart boy and she's doing an incredible job she decided to go back to university you know in her late 40s to do a degree in psychology so she could create a better life for herself and she's so passionate about psychology and doing the best by her son and so she's listening into this show every week because she wants to understand how she can help her son better. So, and I commend her for that. So there's a lot of women listening to the show as well. But at its core, this is a show that deals with men's issues and trying to solve some of these epidemic problems 
to do with depression and suicide in New Zealand. So I've decided to keep the show for men. Someone recommended, uh, I think it was Jasmine, recommended that the show be have, uh, uh, say, a woman of the month, a woman that comes on and talks about men's issues. So I love that idea. I love having uh, an expert in men's issues, a woman come on once a month to discuss that perspective as well. So that's something I'm going to look into. But at its core, the the show is going to keep its uh, purpose of trying to empower and have deep conversations for and about men's issues. So that being said, this week I have one of the most powerful men that I have ever met, Dr. Robert Glover. He wrote a book, my favorite book, called No More Mr. Nice Guy, which I read last year and now I handed out to all of the men in my life and all of my coaching clients because I love it so much. It impacted me so much. And for those of you who don't know, last year, a few months after I read the book, I was on a flight going from L.A. to Puerto Viata in Mexico, a very random, specific flight that I was taking to have a few days of vacation. And uh, an email came through, do you want to upgrade your flight? I looked, it was $80 to upgrade to first class. It was a no-brainer, four-hour flight. And I sit down, this guy sits next to me, we start chatting, he tells me he's a psychotherapist, we hit it off immediately, we're talking about all the stuff that, you know, I love to talk about, men's issues, and then he reveals that he is the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, and I was sitting next to Dr. Robert Glover, this guy that I'd been looking up to since I read his book. And we've stayed in touch. We really hit it off that day and we've stayed in touch and I've been so excited to have him on the podcast. So this is a deep one. We cover a lot of territory in this one. Dr. Glover makes a promise to not hold anything back. So he tells some very, very deep, intimate stories that he's never told anybody before, which to me is an absolute privilege to have that occur on this show. So you're going to love this conversation. Enjoy it. And we start off the conversation when I asked Dr. Glover to tell me about his upbringing in Seattle and how that led him to become a minister. So enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Dr. Robert Glover. Well, I'm a native of uh, Seattle, Washington, and when I was growing up uh, in the Seattle area, it was a uh, small town, small city, um, as one local comedian calls it, is Mayberry with skyscrapers, and maybe you have to be from America to understand Andy of Mayberry and all of that, but it was, I grew up in a bedroom community of all Boeing engineers, families, my dad worked at the post office, um, my mother stayed at home and took care of kids. And I grew up playing sports. I played baseball, football, soccer, uh, all kinds of organized sports. My dad was pretty involved with, uh, didn't really ever coach any of my teams, but came to a lot of my practices. And I was a second of four kids, the oldest boy, older sister, and then a younger sister and younger brother. And basic family dynamic was that my dad, he's uh, passed away about eight, nine years ago, had some kind of mood disorder. I, 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 you know, I'm a therapist. That's probably one of the reasons I became a therapist is trying to figure out my family and just figure out stuff. And I can't tell you what his mood disorder was, but he could, he could be pretty moody, could go into kind of a, a dark mood and stay that way for um, days and weeks where, you know, you didn't dare walk around him. He'd, he'd find something to criticize about you, you know, just the way you walked by. And so um, even though I had, I, I believe, a really good connection with my dad and maybe, maybe a better connection than any of my siblings because I liked sports and he did too, 
he didn't feel safe to be around because you never knew when he was going to all of a sudden lash out. So everybody in the family pretty much walked on eggshells around my father. You never knew when he'd be in a good mood, when he'd be in a bad mood. And to this day, I still have no idea what his triggers were other than I, I believe now he, have, he has something I call now a ruminating brain. And that may be something we can dive into because it's something I've been diving into more myself as well. You know, working with people with a, a mind that just spins constantly, uh, often in negative ways, rehashing the past, you know, dreading the future, measuring and comparing self negatively. So that might be something we can talk more about in a little bit. But I, I think his I think his mind ruminated and, and often negative ways and then he projected that out and then my mother was if you looked up codependent in the dictionary you'd see my mom's picture <laughs> and um she was a good teacher she trained me to be codependent as well i kind of always thought well you know just you know stay stay out of sight you know don't rock the boat don't do anything to piss dad off and he'd get over it and life would would move on and so i learned to avoid conflict and try to make everybody else happy and do the right thing and you know, hide my flaws and faults and mistakes. And um, and then mom kind of lived through us kids. She would hook up her emotional hose to get her sense of importance and well-being and connection from us kids. And, and I think in a lot of ways, she, she turned me into a, her, her, her little spouse. In fact, she even said when we were, uh, when my brother and I were young, she was training us, she was training her sons to be different from our father. Um, now, it's kind of interesting. My mother's actually since that time, you know, as an adult, realized that wasn't such a good idea. And, and has even, you know, talked with me about that, that, that she realized that was a hurtful thing and that it was meaning I had to disconnect from things about myself that, that made me who I was. Um, so uh, I was close to both of my parents in different ways because I, I was able to... Uh, get value from both of them by the ways I, I you know, I, I, I valued sports like my dad and, and I could be mom's companion and go with her and listen to her complain about my father. And, and so I grew up, you know, just being a basic dyed in the wool nice guy. And then when you throw into that, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church, uh, kind of a, a, a smallish sect in the United States called the Church of Christ, kind of like Baptist, but more rigid. And Grew up in a very fundamental, rigid, you know, hellfire and brimstone. You know, if you make one mistake, you, you're, you're, you're at risk of spending eternity in hell. And I've listened to plenty of sermons of how long eternity is. And also kind of a, 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 the, the basic fundamental message about sex. Sex is evil, dirty, sinful, so save it for the one you love. And so I grew up, you know, with those kind of messages. And I went to a, a Christian college. I have, actually have two degrees in religion. Uh, from um, church-related re, uh, schools, and then went on and got my uh, doctorate in marriage and family therapy, and I was a minister for eight years. Probably not nearly as fundamental as, as maybe, you know, a, a lot of my fellow Church of Christ ministers, and then uh, left the ministry after about eight years when a marriage that I was in ended. Since that time, I've been doing one form or another of, of therapy, working with people. So that that's that's kind of my early history. Yeah, that's great, and it's it's so interesting. Like I really relate, and I know a lot of people relate to that childhood having the the dad that uh, was a little bit moody or was triggered, and the mum that smooths everything over, and then the result being you walking on eggshells. And it was interesting what you said that you're still. You were still close to your parents, but 
you know, there were still some issues there. I like the quote someone once said to me that nobody gets out of their childhood unscathed. <laughs> so it doesn't oh, matter. It doesn't matter what happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I as a, I'm a marriage and family therapist. That's what my doctorate's in, and I, I've told, I've told countless parents, hey, you're gonna fuck your kids up. Everybody does. That's not really the problem. The issue is how do you recover from it? Yeah. You know, how, how, how do you how do you work through those mistakes you make with your kids? And even if you were perfect parents, you're gonna send your kids out into a messed up world where they're gonna, go, hey, wait a minute, I don't know how to cope. This is is totally crazy. So, yeah, we we, we all grow up in less than perfect situations. And, and yeah, I, I, in terms of being close to both parents, I would probably identify as being somewhat of a golden child in that I could do the things my father valued, I could do the things my mother valued. And because of that, I probably got more attention than some of my siblings. But I also realized as an adult, and I'm not sure what age it hit me, I was probably in my 30s, maybe older than that, it hit me that I thought, okay, if I'm needless and wantless, if I'm never cause a moment's problems, then I'll have a good life. I'll, 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 then I'll get my needs met and people will appreciate me and approve of me and, and everything will work out well in my life. And I came to realize it's actually, you know, as they say, it's the, 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 the squeaky wheel that gets to grease or something like that. When, when you have lots of needs and problems, that's actually when people show up to, to try to help, help you through and fix things. And so my siblings that I thought, well, man, you know, I'm, I'm the good kid because I don't have all the problems that my siblings have. But, you know, when I got to be an adult, I realized that even when, for example, my brother was in his 40s, my mother was still paying his bills. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I've been the good kid. I went to college. I didn't cost my parents nothing. You know, I, I've I've always been stable. I, I, I I've been free for them. And and here's my brother who was constantly having problems of one form or another. And my mother kept bailing him out until the day he passed away. And so I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. There's something wrong with that paradigm. If I'm needless and wantless and never a moment's problem to anybody, then I'll have a nice, smooth life and people appreciate me and then they'll help me get my needs met. It, it doesn't work that way. So you do have to learn to be a little bit noisy with your needs. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the formula is fundamentally flawed. The formula that you're using is flawed. I want to come back to that because there's a lot of good stuff there. But you mentioned something about your mom. You said the word codependence. And I think you're probably the best qualified person to actually tell people what that means. So can you give a brief explanation of what codependence is? Well, an- another term you might could use is shared functioning. Basically, <laughs> I heard a joke one time that when when a codependent dies, somebody else's life flashes be- before their eyes. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and codependence basically have a, a, a core, it's usually a core emotional belief. It's kind of stored up in a very deep, primitive part of our brain that says my needs are not important. Uh, I'm not good enough. But if I take care of everybody else's needs, if, if, I'm, if I please everybody else, then I'll be loved and liked and get my needs met. And so they, they pretty much overfunction in pretty much every area of life, and, and, and especially in relationships. Now, it happens at work as well, uh, where there's relationships, so to speak, with work. But there's a lot of over-functioning, a lot of giving to get, and I call those covert contracts, and we can talk more about those. A lot of giving to get with the belief that if I just make everything good for everybody else, then everything will be good in my life. And, and the term originally arose out of um, alcoholic relationships, 
where the alcoholic was the identified patient, you know, going into treatment or going into AA. And people working with alcoholics quickly realized that there was often a person in relationship with them in a codependent, not interdependent or even dependent, but codependent, where that codependent person was often trying to manage the addiction of the, the addicted person. And then ironically or paradoxically once they found that often as the addict began to get better the codependent began to be unstable because they didn't have anything to manage anymore there was no shared functioning and the codependent had no center of their own no no center of direction no center of self because they were centering themselves around the addict and and often codependents grow up in addictive families i i remember Years ago, year, years ago, reading a book on adult children of alcoholics. And as I read this kind of list in, uh, of characteristics of adult children of alcoholics, I hit every one of those. And neither of my parents rarely, they rarely drank. Um, so it wasn't that they were addicted to alcohol or drugs, perhaps food, junk food, um, but they, they, neither one of them were out of control addicts in any way. But their emotional states were like addicts. My dad' moods were like the moods of an addict, and my mother was codependent. And I grew up to basically be an adult child of alcoholics with all the characteristics. And so I've gone out and, in many areas of my life, co-created relationships with women, uh, at times with friends, uh, at times in my work, where I, I give, 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 fix, fix, fix. Uh, please, 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 avoid, 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 um, trying to make everything good and smooth. And, um, and, and doing that in my second marriage is what actually led me to getting into therapy and getting into some recovery and actually beginning to explore who I was because uh, basically I was acting in a very passive-aggressive way in my marriage due to the fact that I thought I was giving everything, was feeling unappreciated and unloved, and then my my anger and resentment was coming out towards my wife in indirect ways. And she basically said, if you want to stay married to me, you got to go get some help. And I was in my mid-30s, had a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and had never been to counseling in my life. <laughs> so uh, that, that's, that's another uh, kind of mild marker in my own personal uh, story of recovery. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And that'll be a wake-up call to a lot of people, I think, because that it sounds like a pretty uh, familiar story. And I see a lot of people that, say, grow up with an alcoholic father, they end up marrying an alcoholic or something similar. Is that just as simple as that's where they feel comfortable or that's where their the experience of their childhood, they can replay that in their life and that feels comfortable? Is it that simple? Well, one of the leading writers, I, re I read a book on codependency years ago, and I remember a quote that stood out in my mind that said that uh, we will all marry someone who has some of the worst traits of both of our parents. Right. And, and that's actually good news if you're aware of it. it it's, it's a train wreck if you're not aware of it. Yes, we're going to be attracted to people that let us play the same familiar roles that we played in our earliest love relationships, i.e. with mom and dad. 
whatever those roles were, those feel familiar to us. They're based on our natural temperament. They're based on our birth order. They're based on, on experiences we had as children, the defense mechanisms we, we adopted as children to try to avoid painful things, the, the mechanisms we adapted to try to get love and approval. And that's what we know. And, and one of the things that I've, I found to be true, no matter what kind of family system you grew up in, you unconsciously will go out into the world as a young adult believing the world is like your family. That's, I mean, that's all you've got to measure it by. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's always a big awakening for, for hopefully most people, but maybe some people never wake up to it, to realize, oh, the world as a whole is not necessarily like my family. I can find my family out there in the world, and we usually do, but there's lots of other uh, choices as well. The world's kind of a buffet that if we're conscious, we, we can make some choices that we don't have to keep recreating our family. But the human brain loves familiarity. It loves following the same neural goat pass over and over again. And one of the things I'll often say is that the, the human brain loves hanging out in the same familiar neighborhood, even if that neighborhood's a ghetto. It feels normal. Mm. And uh, yeah, if it feels normal to be unappreciated in a relationship, you'll probably find somebody who doesn't appreciate you. If it feels normal to be with an out-of-control addict, you'll probably be attracted to out-of-control addicts. Now, beneath all of that is often a very unconscious, what would be a good term for it, agenda, an unconscious agenda that if I can fix this other person, if I can help them resolve, if I can make the unavailable person available or the angry person unangry or the unloving person loving or the non-giving person giving, finally it proves I'm worth something. I am lovable after all. And so we've actually, we're all carrying with this thing with us out into the world into relationship that we are gonna tend to pick people that represent our unfinished business from childhood and then if we can get them to change and be different then we feel loved and valued and we think unconsciously it doesn't ever actually work because number one we don't change them and if they did change then we'd be out of a job and 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 the really crazy part of it is for a lot of people we go out there and 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 we actually encounter people that love us and appreciate us and like us just the way we are but when it comes to our, our most intimate love relationships, we often don't pick those people because it doesn't let us carry out our agenda of trying to get that unloving person to love us or or the, the, the angry person to quit being angry or the addictive person to quit being addictive. And therefore, we conquered. We won. We're okay. Um, and it's, it's kind of sick, but we all tend to do it in one way or another. Yeah. Wow. It's so fascinating. And the recovery from that, I guess, is just as scary. And like you say, when you, you look at it uh, as this is a, a, a formula that's never going to have a solution, the only way I can do this is to rewrite my coding, my internal coding. Yeah, and, and we do that by, by being conscious. And, and I mean, we, we could do a whole uh, series of podcasts on that. Sure. But, but for example, um, I'm, I'm at the, as we speak, I am 61 years old. I got married for the third time uh, just about four months ago. Um, after swearing for about 10 years, I would never get married again. <laughs> um, but I met somebody that I thought, you know, for both of us to really blossom and grow, um, I got to get further in. I got to get out of 
I, I got uncomfortable. And I have to face some of my old demons and fears. And and here I am with a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I've been twice before for a total of 25 years. Um, I was single and dated and had relationships for about another 15. And now I'm I'm in a relationship and uh, decided I'm I, I got to get even further in so I can further work on my stuff. And I'm married to an amazing woman. I love her dearly. She loves me dearly. I've, I've never been with somebody who's as caring and nurturing and loving um, and funny and smart as this person is. And she's Mexican and I'm American. We don't even speak the same language, but we have the best communication of anybody I've ever been with. Uh, my Spanish keeps getting better. Um, but she doesn't speak English. Um, she knows a few swear words, um, but you know a few a few niceties. But um, but I tell you what, we trigger each other. Uh, just the fact that we're male and female, we trigger each other. I mean, we triggered each other this morning. I I went to get my immigration card to uh, not immigration card, but my residence card is a Mexican residency, and she'd been working hard on it. And we had this other person who had done some work, a, a woman, and for some reason, my wife and this woman kind of got it loggers heads with each other and uh, I, I, I of course tend to be on my wife's side because I, I know her character and I'm, I'm not so sure of the other woman's character and um, we walked in with my my stepdaughter she's nine to, to go pick up my card and that woman was there to walk us through it and uh, she said hello to me but didn't say hello to my wife she said hello to, to my stepdaughter and I thought oh you know because they, they've kind of had some tension for a little while now and later on, my wife got upset about something that seemed kind of crazy for her to be upset about because I was going to the gym and I changed my schedule of what time I was going and she was upset about it. And when I got back, I, I, I said, let's talk about why you're upset about I mean, me changing my schedule. And she just starts crying. And she said, you know, basically saying, you know, I didn't feel safe. You didn't protect me. You know, you, you, you know, you, you just let her act badly towards me. And, you know, I'm thinking I'm feeling kind of defensive, like, Hey, you know, no, I, I actually, I didn't, I, I, you know, I tried to be near you the entire time. The only time I even talked to her was when I had to, you know, fill out the form. So I was kind of defending myself and feeling done to and falsely accused, which is a big trigger for me, which I've, I get to I get to watch that. Anytime I'm in a relationship with a woman for any amount of time, I get falsely accused. So I, I, I've learned to work on it. Um, and, and people post on my blogs and accuse me of stuff. So, you know, it's a piece I get to keep working on. And so I'm defending myself, and she's feeling unheard and unloved and unprotected. And so she kind of, you know, withdrew a little bit. And I, I went off and did a little work. And I said, okay, let's go out and just lay on the bed. I'm going to read. And she took a nap a little bit. And I just got to thinking, you know, she woke up and I turned to her and I said, I owe you an apology. I said, when we walked in today and she didn't greet you, I could have said to her, hey, I don't like that, that you don't, you know, greet my wife, that you don't offer, you know, saludos a, a, a mi esposa. And I said, I didn't think of it in the moment. I can see why you felt unsafe. I wasn't protective of you. I, I want you to know that's something I'll be more conscious of. I want to be more protective of you, and I want you to feel safe. And because she, I mean, she's eight of ten kids growing up in a poor family in Mexico. She's probably never felt safe in her entire life. She's been abused by probably every person who's ever crossed her path. And, and here she felt abused again. I didn't protect her. She projected her stuff on me. I projected my stuff on her. And 
and as I told her, what I told her when she woke up from her nap, she just moved close to me, gave me three or four really soft, gentle kisses and said, it's, it's in the past. And I said, but I want you to know I understand why you didn't feel safe. And she kissed me again and said, it's in the past. And then it's like, the, you know, the clouds broke. She, you know, she felt fine. So we, we were both triggered. And, and, and how difficult and was it for you to stuff. offer the apology? How difficult in that moment is it for you to, to offer it, that? It, it was mixed in that, number one, I know the power of that. I've, I've coached men on doing that, not in a manipulative way, but to own something to their, to their woman in a way that, hey, I own this, that either like I haven't been setting the tone in our relationship or I haven't been leading or I haven't been somebody you can trust. I, I, I get it. I owe you an apology. It's been hurtful to you. Here is my intention of how I want to move forward. And, and it is very powerful for a woman. W- women by nature are very forgiving, even though we men don't tend to think so. Um, very forg- Feminine creatures are very forgiving by nature. They have to be because connection is everything for a feminine creature. And, um, and so when I was lying there, kind of rehearsing the words in Spanish in my head <laughs> before I said them, I, I, I knew, okay, she might just, she could use them against me. She could lash out. She could continue to just withdraw. She could respond well. I didn't know, but it didn't matter to me because I wanted her to know I understood why she didn't feel safe and I understood what I did to contribute to that, and I understood what I could have done differently and what, will, what I'll try to do differently in the future that I understand. I just want her to know I understood why she felt unsafe and, and my part in that. And so beyond that, it didn't matter to me how she responded. It didn't surprise me when she responded with moving closer and being affectionate and kind of melting into me. That didn't surprise me but I didn't know how she would be. As you look back now, like on your life, you say you're 61 years old, third marriage now. How do you look back on your life as you see the journey that you've been on, the ups and downs, the constant you know, growth work that you've had to do to get to this point? How do you reconcile everything that's gone on in your own mind? I, I don't know that I try. I, I love my life. I like where I'm at and on many levels. I mean, I, I bought, a, uh, for me, a beautiful home in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where it's sunny almost every day of the year. Um, I have a beautiful wife who loves me to death. I have a job that I absolutely love. I have a good reputation in the world. I've written a book. I'm changing the world. I get emails every day from men that say I've changed their lives. Um, I'm working on another book. I, uh, I, I love I love my life, and everything that's occurred in my life has brought me to the point where I am, including my really big mistakes. And I've made some big mistakes. Um, and I tell guys, you know, who work with me, who maybe have anxiety of taking a risk that it, they might do the wrong thing, or they might make a mistake, or they might look foolish or fall flat on their face. I say, hey, you're talking to me because you read my book. And I said, my book, no more, Mister Nice Guy is not a chronicle of my successes. It's a record of my mistakes. Everything I talk about in that book comes out of a personal experience of mistakes that I've made. And and I, I, I keep trying to learn from them. And unfortunately, I, I still continue to make some of them. 
um, which at times I have to go through a grieving process because there's this part of me that really does want to do everything right. Yeah. Um, but uh, or as, as a good my good friend says, Robert, you, you like to think the sunshine smiles, you know, shines out your ass. And and I, I feel a little shame when he says that, but it's true. I like to, to, to think of myself and be thought of as a good guy. And 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 I, I do it some, some terrible stuff. It never goes away. Like another really good friend of mine, a therapist in, in L.A., um, I was going through a tough time uh, a couple years back when I'd, um, you know, messed up again in life. And, and he said, Robert, it's this simple. He said, you can be an ass, but you're not an ass. And when you can reconcile those two truths, you'll be okay. And it's kind of like the light bulb went on in my head. Oh, Yes, of course. I'm a flawed human being. I, I, I do unthoughtful and, and hurtful things, but I'm not an unthoughtful and hurtful person. And I can integrate that and accept both sides of, of those things in myself. And I've learned to accept both sides. And it takes work to accept your dark side and your lighter side. I am a good guy. I do a lot of good things. I'm a decent human being. And I've got a dark side that... Probably because I like to think of myself, you know, the sun shining out my ass. I like to think of myself as a good guy. I, I, I keep a pretty tight lid on the darker parts of myself. And um, unfortunately, they sneak out and bite me on the ass. And unfortunately, they often hurt other people in the process. And that, that's the part that, that usually grieves me the most, mm. is that my, my human imperfections tend to, to hurt innocent people along the way. Yeah, I think that that's a tough one. I really relate to that. And that distinction, it's such a small distinction, but it's one that I really struggle with, that I do stupid things. My behavior can be stupid and hurtful, but at my core, I'm a good person. And that's a daily thing that you have to remind yourself of, I find. It, it is. And, you know, it's like, for example, watch the struggles I have in my relationship with my wife, is that sometimes I can be petty and immature and, and reactive and and um today i, I was while well, i was laying on the bed after we'd had this difficult time i was just doing some reading reading some tick knock on um re- reading some other you know some daily meditation stuff that i read and into my head um it said i had a thought that that said um Instead of reaction, practice compassion. And I thought, oh, yeah. I, I, and I put that into my phone. I typed it into my phone. Instead of a reaction, practice compassion. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm still learning. You know, that, that, that dark reactive side can come out in me that hurts people I care about. And, but there's this other part that wants to keep growing um, in, into a more compassionate, loving, open human being. This is one thing I love about you. When, when I first met you, and you know, I, I've read your book. I'm a, I am one of those um, people that you've changed my life through the book. And so when I met you, and some of the first conversations we started to have was you saying, "Hey, I'm still struggling with this. There's a couple of things I'm working on right now," mm-hmm. and that was such a relief for me because for so much of my life I was looking for the answer or the one book that was going to solve everything. I was looking for the thing that would just I do this one course and then I'll be better I'll be a good person and then that's it but you just modeled so beautifully that there was no top to the mountain that hey 
just keep going, you know, and learn to love the fact that you're going to make mistakes and there'll be more opportunities to grow. And I love that about you, that you're so honest about how it's an ongoing process. And then even today you were reading another book about it. Yeah, you know, one of the things, the feedback I get the most, especially when I do like a weekend workshop with guys, um, I mean, I love it. I'm in my element. That's my gift. It's just to, you know, spend like 15 hours with a group of eight to 10 guys, no notes, nothing rehearsed, nothing planned, and we just go deep. And, and, and it's what I do best. It's my gift. And, and what the most common feedback I get, and I would not have received this feedback 25 years ago, um, even though I was trying to be a good guy and smart and intelligent and make a good pressure on people and stuff like that, is guys will say, you know, you're so authentic. You're just you. You know, you, you, you admit your mistakes, you put them out there. And like I said, I didn't do that years ago. Um, but, but I've learned to just be me. And one of the things that I've said is that there's nothing that I've done in my lifetime that at least one person on this planet doesn't know about. My, my, my life's an open book. I, I record podcasts. I write. I do seminars. And I'm, I'm a living illustration of things that work and things that don't work. And I'm willing to share both. And for me, and I'm glad that was helpful to you because that's the feedback I get is that people like authenticity. They, they like people that are real, not, not perfect and, and got everything together. And for me, one of my, um, kind of like you said, an inspiration for me is I remember years ago reading, um, probably about 30 years ago, reading uh, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And I'm told it's the all-time best-selling self-help book of all time. And I treated myself several years ago to go to a, a workshop uh, with him. And actually, I think it was just a one-day uh, conference, and, and it, is, I, it was my birthday present to myself. And basically, he stood up in front and talked about his books, uh, Road Less Traveled and People of the Lie, and talked about you know his own journey. And, and, and if, if you've never read Road Less Traveled, it's like got three sections to it. One's on discipline, one's on love. Um, I can't remember the other section. It's been a while since I've read it. But it begins with discipline and, um, and the, the, nece- the necessity of discipline in life to, to have a fulfilling, fulfilled life. And, um, and while he talked, he drank coffee pretty much all day long. And during breaks, he went outside and smoked. And, and he's a psychiatrist. <laughs> and he's, he's written this like best-selling self-help book with, you know, with hard-hitting you know, discipline, you know, learning discipline in your life. And then, you know, like after a lunch break, people could write their questions on note cards and and then they were all turned into him. And he goes, well, I'll start with this question because it's the one I get the most. And, and, you know, Dr. Peck, you talk about discipline. uh, You've written a book about it, but you drink coffee, you know, know, like a fish, you you smoke. and, And he just looked up and he goes, I'm not done yet. And that changed my life because I grew up because my father was so critical. I thought I've got to be perfect. I got to have my act together. I got to have my shit together for me to actually make a difference and, and for anybody to even listen to me or take me seriously. And that really turned my thinking around that here was something I respect, a person I respected, held in high regard, and I didn't think any the less of him when he said, I'm not done yet. And, and it's interesting that as he, he wrote several more books, and he passed away, I think, maybe about five years ago. And one of the books he wrote near the end of his life was talking about the multiple affairs he had throughout his life. 
And I read an article where he was interviewed by in a, in a magazine article about the book and about his affairs. And, and the person interviewing him said, what happened? What changed? Why did they stop? Did you become more conscious? Did you become more aware? What made the difference? And Peck just said, my libido gave out. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I still love this guy. Yeah. Um, you so, never mastered it. Never mastered it. And that's okay. It's okay. And yeah, maybe if the people you work with, the people I work with, can get that message that, you know, you're okay. Get up today and have a good life. Work on what you can work on today. Accept the stuff you can't change. Let go of the past. You know, learn what you need to learn from it. Maybe write a book about it, but quit beating yourself up about it because it doesn't serve you. And it just gets in the way and creates walls between you and other people. So this idea of perfection or finding perfection is impossible. Well, it, it of course, is impossible. Um, and, and what do they say in 12-step groups, Alcoholics Anonymous, is progress, not perfection. And, yeah, that's all we can do is just keep making progress, get up every day. And um, a- after kind of the little meltdown with my wife today, I, I made a commitment to live the rest of the day uh, and try to stay clean of any negative thinking or negative influences and just live with compassion. So, okay, create an intention every day and get up and live that day by that intention and and have your best day and then do it again the next day. I've heard you use this word, authenticity. Yeah, I, I, I don't, that popped out of my head one time and I thought maybe I had invented it, but I think I Googled <laughs> it one time and, and somebody, somebody else owned it. So I don't know if they owned it, but I think maybe I, I put it in a blog article and somebody like, you know, ripped me a new asshole and said, I invented the term authenticity. Right. Okay, you can have it. It's yours. <laughs> um, so, um, but I do like it. You know, it just, it's got kind of just that funny ring to it of, of living your life with authenticity and integrity, uh, kind of the way I tend to put it. And, and this is one of my mantras that, that probably the one that I fail to live up to the most often is nothing hidden nothing half-assed. And I think if you can get up every day and live that day with nothing hidden, no, don't hide your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, your, your intentions, your wants, don't hide anything and don't do anything half-assed. If you're going to do it, bring your A-game, do it with passion, get all in with it. And if you can live every day approaching that, nothing hidden, nothing half-assed, uh, you're going to kick some ass in this world and, and you're going to have a good life. Beautiful. I think back to my own story, my own you know nice guy journey, and that was something that I guess only a few years ago I, I started to realize that I had this nice guy thing going on, and that it didn't feel good. I felt like um, I was liked by a lot of people, and I was a nice guy, but one, I didn't feel fulfilled. Two, I didn't feel authentic. Three, I didn't feel respected. I felt like people liked me, but didn't respect me, per se. Uh, and so my coach said to me, well, I haven't read this book, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. It's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Have a read and see if it fits. And this is the same thing that everybody, because I give your book to all of my clients. And this is the same thing that everybody says. Four or five pages in, you're going, holy shit, this book was written for me. This is written about my life. This may as well be me on these pages. And I just devoured that book. And just it was a complete revelation. Like my life changed from that moment. And it's a work in progress. I'm a recovering nice guy, and you know, I'm a testament to what we we're just talking about. It's I like constantly fall back into the trap of not being 
authentic and in integrity and just you know falling back into that nice guy habit um but then fast forward a couple of months i'm flying from la to puerto viata which is a you know completely on the other side of the planet from where i live and i get on an airplane chose to upgrade to business class it was like 80 dollars or something to upgrade which seemed like a no-brainer to me i sit down on the airplane start talking to this lovely guy next to me he's giving me all this advice about puerto viata and then tells me that he wrote this book called no more mr nice guy and it's you and it's for me this was the most mind-blowingly serendipitous moment of my life that this one book that had changed my life that i recommend to everyone all of a sudden i'm sitting next to you on this random flight on the west coast of the americas so so crazy life is interesting and i and i do love that another one of my kind of personal mantras is i love waking up in the morning not knowing how my day is going to end and I love the adventure of that. And when, when both of us got on that airplane, and you and I just kind of started chatting, and, and uh, you know, I asked what you did, and you said, well, you're a pilot, and you're a, a men's coach. I said, oh, really? And, and we talked more. I said, yeah, I work with men as well. And, you know, it came out that, that I'd written the book, and you said, you're kidding. You're, you're Robert Glover. I could recommend your book to everybody. And I got, I got a kick out of that because one of the things, ever since I wrote the book, it, it came out in 2003 in hardcover. So it's 2017 as we speak. So uh, actually almost to this date, probably 14 years ago, it, it came out. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I always said, I, I would love to see somebody reading my book on an airplane sometimes. <laughs> and, and I never have. Now, I've never seen anybody on, on public transportation of any sort reading my book. But, but, but the closest thing to it, as you said, I upgraded the, I think I got upgraded to first class by the airline. And here we were sitting next to each other and the randomness of that. And, and you had read my book, knew who I was. And um, that, that, that's, that's just as good somebody reading the book because i actually got to talk to you and and here we are talking today so um i I love that story and i've told it uh, as well just because to me it's just one of those little interesting stories of how cool life is if you actually get out there and 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 go be around people and have conversations and walk through open doors that that life really is interesting and 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 really cool stuff comes your way if you get out there and, and are open to it and I, I like to believe you know rightly or wrongly it doesn't matter but it's an empowering belief for me is that you get these signs you know when you're on the right track and you know i've invested more money more time more training than my entire life on my own personal development and working on becoming a better coach and then to have that moment happen with you for me i just treat that as a sign that's a sign that i'm on the right path and that feels empowering to me and and it, it it is to me as well because again it reinforces the impact that my book is having on men all over the world i mean you're You've you've lived part of your life in New Zealand. Uh, you know you, you live in in uh, Japan now, right? Yeah. Or, and uh, so you you're 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 all over the world, and and you you travel all over the place, and so I really do get that something that I, that I, I I sat down took seven years for me to write um, has had an impact worldwide, and and again that's reinforcing that. Any one person can have an impact on the world, and you've sat next to me on an airplane. I, 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 I don't walk around like I'm somebody special. I don't think I'm anybody special. I think I'm just, you know, I'm just an average Joe. Um, I've, I've been blessed in many ways. I've been lucky in many ways, 
and um, I, I've stumbled into kind of a sweet spot that of of doing some stuff that works for me. And maybe I can say, well, maybe my 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 greatest gift is that I'm 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 pretty good at taking. I'm a systems analyst basically, and I can take stuff and explain it to people well. Um, and that's that's my gift. I I can explain stuff well, um, but apparently the stuff I'm explaining to people. Uh, is is hitting home for a lot of people, and and that's it's good feedback for me to know that. Well, let's talk about the book because um, it is such an incredible book, and I you know <laughs> I know I keep going on about how great this book was, but it's so many people writing books these days. You know, there's new books. Everybody can bang a book out on Kindle, but to write a book that you know this book will last generations past your lifetime, and will you know because it's so apt. And will keep impacting people. I think that's very rare to have a book that just will keep on giving, you know, generation after generation. When well, I tell let, people, let, let me let me just say this too. It's sure. just kind of a paradoxical thing, and hopefully this inspires, encourages you and, and other people listening. As I said, it took me seven years to write the book, and I didn't yeah, set out to incredible. write a book. I, I was doing my own nice guy recovery and even figuring out what this was. I was a marriage and family therapist. I had guys come to me with their wives and girlfriends and they were saying the exact same things I was saying. I'm a nice guy. I'm better than her ex. I treat her well. I, you know, I take care of her kids. I, you know, I, you know, I, I give and give. I try to make her happy, but it's never enough. She's always angry. When's it going to be my turn? You know, she never wants sex anymore. Bob, I'm thinking, man, you know, I'm not the only one that, that is in this boat. And so I just started a, a no more Mr. Nice Guy group. We met every other week. I started writing just some some stuff to give to them every week of what I was kind of self-discovering about nice guy syndrome. So this isn't anything I learned out of a book. This came out of my own recovery and working with a lot of other guys. Took seven years because I was learning to write. I was learning about nice guys. Took me three years to get the book published. And, um, you know, I was getting uh, a lot of media attention because I was knocking on a lot of doors. And finally, I couldn't get a publisher. I couldn't get an agent. Finally, um, Esquire was going to do an article about me. Uh, somebody Googled nice guy and decided, you know, hey, let's do an article about this. And um, and so I, I found an agent, a New York agent, successful, didn't need my book, but he liked it. And, um, and as we shopped it, every major publisher said, we like it. We like the book. But our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book and especially won't buy, won't buy a book that tells them that they're losers, basically, was the <laughs> message. And I kept saying, you do not understand the market. You do not understand the men this is addressed to. This is guys who want to know how to be better men, who want to be good guys, and, and they will buy it. And my agent believed in me, and, and he pushed and supported and found me a contract and and, and it, you know, it started selling some and selling some. But like I said, it's been out 14 years now. And every year, my royalty checks get bigger. So wow. the book, as you say, is growing and expanding. And my publisher and my agent both have been pounding on my door for a while to, to write another book. And, and I am. Um, but you're right. It is something that will outlast me. I mean, I've, I, I, that has sunk in that not only will the book outlast me, the royalty checks will outlast me as well. And I, and I just say that to say, okay, if you're working at something, if you're challenging yourself, if you're doing something that feels worthwhile, it feels right to you, 
is a reflection of your deepest passion and intention. <clears throat> and even if you hit roadblocks, even if people, you know, don't get it, I mean, if you believe in it, keep plugging away at it. And and I did. And you know, nobody knew what was going to become of it. Nobody knew if people would buy it. And the reason it continues to sell well and better every year is primarily word of mouth, probably both online and like chat rooms and stuff like that. But people like you that, you know, you, you tell every one of your, your guys that you coach with, go buy the book. And a lot of people that, that contact me say their coach, their therapist, their ex-wife, their ex-girlfriend told them to get the book. <laughs> so it's a lot of word of mouth. It's a very specific phrase, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And sometimes I recommend it to people and they go, they're a little bit turned off by the title because they go, what's wrong with being a nice guy? Why would I, why would I want to stop being a nice guy? So why is being a nice guy a bad thing? Why is it no more Mr. Nice Guy? Well, and, and it's a good point. And, and actually my agent, when, when we first started talking, he says, well, maybe we should you know, pick a different name. And I said, no, non-negotiable. I'm not backing <laughs> right. down on that one. No more yeah. Mr. Nice Guy. I'm not backing down. But you're right. There's a paradox in there, which is part of the catchiness of the title, is we've probably have all said at one time or another, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm not taking this anymore. I'm, I'm not waiting around anymore. I'm taking action. So we probably have all said it. But you're right. At the same time, well, you look at it and you say, why, why would somebody write a book teaching men to be not nice? And, and one of the things I talk about real early in the book is that nice guys are fundamentally not nice. Um, we think we're good guys. But the fact that we never really say what we want, what we think, what we feel was important to us, um, we're fundamentally dishonest. You know, we're always kind of licking our finger and holding it up to see which way the wind's blowing because we don't want to, uh, I'll mix metaphors, don't want to rock the boat. Um, and, and, and so we're fundamentally dishonest. And, and we do tend to be passive aggressive um, where our, our anger and resentment comes out in indirect and unloving ways. We tend to have something that my ex-wife named because she knew about them intimately she called them victim pukes you know where i'd been nice <laughs> nice nice for so long and you know i'm feeling unappreciated or unloved or unvalued or falsely accused there's that big one for me and and i would just puke out everything that had ruminated in my head that i'd stored up every everything i was pissed off about and my you know then wife would be devastated and basically I didn't know you felt that way about so many things. Well, I never told her because I kept them in because I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want a negative reaction. But then I would victim puke all over her. And she would often say to me, I'd rather be with an asshole than a nice guy because at least an asshole, you know what to expect. With a nice guy, you don't. And she was when right. You, you talk about them being manipulative. You're talking about a nice guy is manipulating and controlling because he can't ask for what he wants because that might rock the boat. So he has to come up with all these other strategies to get his needs met. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because really a very core point of, of the book and of the, the nice guy syndrome is something that I call covert contracts. Now covert means hidden or secretive or not, not exposed. Um, and contracts are fine if they're overt and everybody on board has agreed to them. But the nice guy basically has three covert contracts. And, and every nice guy, um, one may be stronger than the others, but most nice guys have all three to some degree. And, and they may fluctuate depending on the context we're in. But the three fundamental covert contracts are this. And they're all if-then, and they're all about giving to get, which is fundamentally unloving by nature. 
But covert contract number one is that if I'm a nice guy, then people will like me and love me. And you can add to that, and people that I desire will desire me as well. So if I'm a good guy, people will like me and love me. Number two, um, if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Now, can you see the setup here where you're doing everything you can to meet other people's needs without them ever having to ask you while you wait for them to figure out what your needs are? You never and, ask. Mm. And, 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 then, and then when you add to it that probably we have picked people that aren't very good at giving anyway because that feels normal and familiar to us. Uh, can you imagine the victim pukes that probably uh, follow that? Absolutely. Uh, and then I don't have three, to imagine them. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. Okay, good. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then covert contract number three of the nice guy syndrome is that if I do everything right, or at least hide my mistakes well, if I do everything right, I'll have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, as you probably can see, that life that world doesn't exist. There is no smooth, problem-free life. And that's another reason why nice guys both can be not nice in our passive aggressiveness and victim pukes, but often why a lot of nice guys are really bitter and resentful and withdraw from the world. It's kind of like, wait a minute, I've been following the rule book. I've been doing everything right. But yet, you know, some are angry at God, some are angry at the universe, some are angry at all women, some are angry at, you know, government, whatever and it's because i've been doing it right but there's this conspiracy because i've not been getting this, this smooth problem-free world back in return and and there's a lot of bitter reclusive nice guys out there just because we thought we were playing by the rules but the rest of the world didn't know about our rule book and, and we're bitter about that um so as you can see Nice guys often are not nice because of our resentments, our bitterness, our manipulation, our covert contracts, um, our codependency, our victim pukes, our passive aggressiveness. And for those of you, and, and I have to say, when I got out of my second marriage and started dating and meeting lots of different kinds of women, I dated a few nice girls. And they were nice. But I, I quickly discovered two things about nice girls. One is I felt almost no passion towards them because there's like nothing much there, you know, to create some friction with me. And number two is like they wouldn't ever tell me what they wanted. You know, I'd make a suggestion or two, oh, whatever you want, it's fine. They would never say if they were bothered. I'd never know what they're really feeling or thinking or wanted. And I tell you what, after dating two or three nice girls, I had tremendous empathy for both of my ex-wives, for what they put through, what they I put them through, what they went through, where I, I would not have a backbone or any balls or I would not set the tone or lead or say what I wanted or say when I was angry or upset or disappointed or I wanted something of them. And I wasn't good at letting them give to me or help me meet my needs. I just was passive aggressive and used covert. I thought, oh. You know, I had the greatest empathy towards towards the two women that spent twenty between them twenty five years with me of my nice guy stuff. And you talk about the the, the number one covert contract, the, the simple one that everyone can relate to, is saying "I love you." Yeah, it's that kind of. I I, I mentioned that in the book because probably it's like you know when when you're wanting validation and wanting some you know words of affection from your partner and you lean in and say "I love you." You know, kind of that fishing, you know, and, and if you've been with somebody long enough, they usually say, yeah, I love you too. Um, 
Um, and I was actually in one relationship where we kind of playfully got to an agreement that neither one of us would ever respond to an I love you with another I love you. And it was actually kind of fun and it actually a little bit jarring as well to yeah. say I love you to somebody and they just smile. <laughs> and Wait a minute, wait a minute. There, there's there, there's supposed to be and I love you too at the end of that because we're so ingrained into that. So, But that's a covert contract. You're giving something to get. Now, are all covert contracts evil and, and hurtful and manipulative? No. I mean, they're as sublime as, you know, I love you, I love you too. And and maybe that maybe that's not such a terrible thing. But if we're living our lives where everything we do, the other other person, other people have no clue what we really think, what we really feel, what we really want, what's really going on in our head. Um, yeah, we're going to have a pretty frustrating life and we're going to uh, frustrate a lot of other people. And a lot of times people just get tired of that and move on. It's not that they don't love us or care about us. It's just hard to get close and stay close to a nice guy or a nice girl. You said that the, the fundamental flaw in the thinking is that people are drawn to perfection or people are drawn to just everything being fine and everything being nice. When in reality, people are drawn to shared interests, shared problems. That's where connection comes from, not from just this empty wall of niceness. Yeah, I, I speak of nice guys being Teflon men. I don't know if they still sell Teflon or not, but you, know, we, you can still buy non-stick cookware you know that's the nice guy nothing sticks to us we don't want anything to stick to us you know we you know we we either hide away and don't take any risks because we might fail at something or look foolish or if we do make a mistake we hide it or we lie we lie about it or you know we, we we're just not very bold and and one of the things that when i started teaching men dating skills one of the things i tell them is is to blurt and act on impulse and and you know if you got a thought in your head, blurt it. You know with a woman. And if 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 you if you have an impulse to do something, do it. Don't hold back because we pre-censor everything. Guys do because we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to upset anybody. We don't, we don't want a negative reaction. And so we're boring. We're Teflon. But when you start actually just being you, whatever's in the front of your head. Or guys will say, well, you know what I'm when I'm trying to talk to a woman, uh, or you know you know if it's a gay guy, you say, well, I'm trying to talk to a guy. You know, there's nothing in my head. And I said, hey, unless you're a fucking Zen master, you got something in the front of your brain. <laughs> Say it. Blurt it. Quit holding back. And and even if you crash and burn occasionally, okay, now you've got a memorable story to tell. Don't beat yourself up. Laugh about, you know, that time I said that thing and put my foot in my mouth. Okay. You know, be human. People connect with human beings. Totally. And it's um... – yeah, it's interesting yeah, on the dating, you know, that approval. You talk a lot about a nice guy. A lot of his life is based on approval from women or in uh, a gay relationship, the masculine guy getting approval from the feminine side. Exactly. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a little joke there that I read that was funny. You said, if a man speaks in a forest and no woman is there to hear it, is he still wrong? Is he still wrong, right. <laughs> I, I didn't that make that up. I heard I heard that from – that that came from a, a resentful man, I guarantee it. Definitely. Um, so what's and, the um, – because this is a – you know, it's great to talk about all the, all the traits, but I want to give people some, some hope. So what can they look forward to on the other side? Obviously, the best option is to read the book, and it's available on Amazon. It's easy to find. Um, but what's available to someone after recovery? One thing you have in the book and after 
every couple of paragraphs you have a breaking free activity here's the way to break this trait here's the way to break this habit and i think i can't remember there's like 40 50 60 breaking free habits or activities in the book um but as they start going through those activities in the recovery what's available to them on the other side I, I ter- in terms of resources or what they might be able to no, look forward to? No, in terms of to? what, when, as you re- yeah, what you might be able to look forward to. Um, more of the same. Um, it, it never ends. Uh, I, I, I love David Data and his work, and I, and I often recommend his book, The Way of the Superior Man. And, and the very first chapter of Way of the Superior Man, I think the very first paragraph, says that the masculine error is to think at some point they will all end and I'll be able to rest that my woman will quit having this thing that upsets me or that my boss will quit being this way or I'll finally make that million dollars, then I can rest. And he says, that's that's a mistake. It never ends. So that's what you have to look forward to. It never ends. I still bumble my way through relationships. I still get frustrated. I still overreact. Um, I, I still slip into unconscious states uh, of where I'm, I'm acting out of integrity. Uh, at times I, I don't. Uh, I do hide things. At times I, I do do things half-assed. But I, I know personally I'm happy. Even on my worst day, I'm happy. And I think I'm, I, if I had to say why am I happy, is because I get up every day and, and I live life on my terms. I'm, I'm not trying to live my life on anybody else's terms. It, it wasn't anybody else's idea for me to, to find a way to live in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I came here about 17, 18 years ago on a vacation with my now ex-wife. First day, fell in love, thought I'm coming back, I'm gonna work on my Spanish, and, and, I, and I got down here you know, as often as I could, and then about, and I, th- I thought, I, I, I gotta find a way to live here more than just a few days out of the year. And so about over 10 years ago, I started converting my business to where I could do it anywhere in the world online. And then about seven, eight years ago, I came down here for the first time for three months as an experiment, and everything worked out fine. And and um, my business now, I make more money online than I ever did in private practice um, because I honored my intention. It felt good to be here. And everything in my life, I'm living it on my terms. And And to me, when you get to that point, there's no reason not to get up and be happy every day. Even if it's raining outside, even if your knee hurts, even if you're in pain, even if you don't understand why somebody you love is acting all crazy, um, you can still be happy every day. And and I'm I'm not advocating okay here's a you know a pill that you're just happy 24/7. I mean I have my struggles, but I've I've also found certain key things that if I if I keep them in a pretty good floating balance, I I'm happy. I wake up happy. I go to bed happy, and. Um, Maybe that's what we have to look forward to is that if you learn how to live life on your terms, honor your intentions, follow your passions, learn to live in your sweet spots, minimize the things that are not your sweet spot or minimizing things that are not in your, uh, uh, Gay Hendricks calls it your zone of genius. He writes about that in a book called The, the Big Leap that I'm actually reading right now. Um, learn to honor you and, and, and do it. Do it your way, kind of Frank Sinatra, you know, singing about he did it his way. I I, I kind of tear up when I hear that song, you know. Do yeah. it your way. Live life on your terms. And and the, some people you'll alienate. Some people won't won't be interested. But find out who likes hanging out with you if you're just being exactly who you are on your terms. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful message. 
and when we were sitting on the airplane together, I told you I was about to start this podcast, which is, I said to you before, it's exciting that we're finally here and that you're on the show. You said, ask people about their dark side. He goes, I've never heard that on any podcast or any radio show. That's not something guys like to talk about. And so anyone that listens to this show knows the last question I always ask is, do you have a dark side and what is it? And that comes from you. So I'm going to turn that's the tables I'm, on you now. Yeah, that, that's on me now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah uh, I, explain what a dark side is because, again, you're, you're qualified to talk about what that is. And then give us a little insight to your dark side. Well, man, I, I, we could do a whole, whole workshop on this. Um, right. I would say probably the quick, easy answer is your dark side is that part of you that, that you tend to not like looking at and you don't want anybody else to look at. And for a lot of guys, it's their sexuality. We grew up in, in cultures that, as I said, you know, we bombard us with sex, but tell us sex is evil or bad. So uh, we are very sexual creatures. So a lot of adolescent males go underground and hide their sexuality, looking at porn and fantasy, and it stays underground, and, and they, they carry a lot of sexual shame. So the areas in which you feel shame, that you keep hidden, that, that tend to keep biting you on the ass— for me, it doesn't tend to be, for example, that I'm such an angry guy or that, you know, that it, it, it tends to come out in this part of me that can go unconscious of not even realizing I'm not being honest with people and, and I'm not letting them see all of me or the real me. And it's not in any one particular area. And, and one of the things I've had to learn to do is I've, I've got to keep groups or people in my life where I keep checking in and be completely visible. And then, then it's harder for me to go like underground or invisible in, in other areas of life. And so that it kind of goes back to that nothing hidden, nothing half-assed. I, I can fall into traps of, of hiding behaviors from people that I love that are completely unloving. And uh, that, that one has crept up on me more than once. So can that, you give that's a specific way. example. Is there something you can think of just to make that real? Well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you two examples, and I've talked about this in plenty of other places. Um, my first marriage ended because I had an affair with the woman that became my second wife, and I happened to be a minister at the time, <laughs> and uh, she happened to be the best friend of my wife, and she happened to be married as well. So <laughs> that was not very pretty. And then about two years into that marriage, I had another. Uh, inappropriate relationship. I don't know if I'd even call it an affair, but I, I was inappropriate with a friend of my then second wife, and I quit. I, I just bailed on that. And about a year later, she told my wife. I don't know why. And my wife said, "I can't put up with this anymore." As for she said, "You got to get into therapy." And um, and so I, I've had that tendency at times to to get secretive and go underground. Um, but I'm going to tell a story. This is kind of a telling on me story, but I've, I've told it before um, that still I'm not sure I've figured out yet, but I, probably there, there's something interesting behind it. Um, one of the things my wife and I started doing, actually I started doing back around last May, I had some guys in one of my workshops that are really into to Tantra. So I talked with some a little bit about with them about Tantra. And so basically I came away saying, OK, I'm, I'm going to you know, try to not um, ejaculate with when I have sex with my wife and I'll try to go for periods of, you know, a few weeks or at least two or three weeks without coming. And as I started doing that, my wife didn't think I could actually do that. And she was surprised and she came to really like it because it keeps me a lot more 
uh, energized sexually at 61. She's 22 years younger than me. So she got a pretty high sex drive and thinks I'm great. And so she wants to have sex every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And at 61, it's just not in my mind all that much. But when I started practicing kind of this, you know, my own personal version of Tantra, of not coming, where I'm breathing more, I'll slow down, I'll, you know, I'll delay ejaculation. And, and really, I, I only come about every two or three weeks. She loves it because we can go forever. I stay aroused in between. I don't lose my sex drive after I come. I have to wait another two or three days where I'm interested. And, and our sex can get pretty dirty. She, she likes to talk dirty and us tell each other fantasy stories and and um and one time i just had gotten back from being out of town and um and and we were having sex and she started being dirty and talking dirty and um and just to say something dirty like i said to, to not hold back i said um oh i said you 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 fuck so professional you could make a lot of money fucking a lot of men and it's a compliment <laughs> you know and, I, and we're just talking dirty to each other and, and she looks up at me and with big eyes and just said, do you want to watch me fuck other men? And I came without, without even thinking, without even like a warning, I ejaculated. And, and she looked at me with big eyes and I said, hmm, I think there might be something behind that. <laughs> and, and honestly, to this day, I do not know what that was. But I think that's coming out of my dark side when she just, being dirty, said, do you want to watch me fuck other men for money? And, of course, in real life, we don't do that. It was just, you know, sex talk. And, and, and the fact that I, it aroused me so instantly that I ejaculated, and it's kind of like I didn't even see it coming. So there, there's, there's a personal, you know, the whole world will know that story now since you're going to record it. And I'm not, I guess probably I do have a little bit of embarrassment about it, but, um, but there's, a, there's a dark side. It'll pop up in, in ways you don't expect. And all you need to do is go, hmm, I wonder what that's about. And then don't, don't be embarrassed it, by it. Don't hide it. Yeah, don't hide it. Bring it out in the open and take a look at it. In whatever way, with a therapist, a good buddy, whoever. Take a look at it. Wow, I appreciate the courage. Thank you for telling that story. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, my, my face is still red and flushed. I can feel it. Yeah, <laughs> but that's beautiful. Like I, that's, I, you know, I still get embarrassed. Well, that's what I said. You know, That's why I said to you, you, you model what it looks like to be authentic, and you, you know, you're the first person to model what you teach. And I can't think of any better way to teach than that. Well, I appreciate it, and, uh, and I'm glad it's helpful, and, and I'm glad it's been helpful to you and to, to your listeners of your podcast. And people can – you've got all these courses. You have a, a thing – you started a thing called TPI University. You run all these courses online. People can come and do uh, six-week courses, or they can see um, podcasts on, that you've done on your website, or they can buy the book. And Your website's drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. Right. There's just a ton of references on there as well as courses people can subscribe to. It's a great, great reference. Um, is there anything else you want to share that you've got coming up or any courses that you, you want to You know, just push? go poke around. Poke around at drglover.com. You know, people will be listening to this at all kinds of different times. And every one of my courses I teach about every six months. And I have one called Positive Emotional Tension about, about how, to, how, to, how to create basically polarity. Uh, in relationship. I have a relationship called All the Way In. It's about men setting the tone in their intimate relationships. Uh, I have another one called Ruminating Brain. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. It's about people whose minds tend to spin uh, constantly. And usually 
ways that make them feel bad about themselves and bad about the world. Uh, I have another one that's actually starting um, in March, uh, just coming up in a, a couple of weeks, called Nice Guys Don't Finish Last. They Rot in Middle Management. Um, I talk in it about how to get out of your own way and live up, up to, to your success in life. Uh, be successful in life. Be a full achiever. And also I have another course that I have somebody else teach on um, for men on ADD, ADHD. A lot of men have undiagnosed ADD. And, mm-hmm. and I asked him to develop this course a few years ago. And I've got lots of podcasts, as you mentioned. I've recorded over 200-something podcasts, mostly about relationship, life, recovery from nice guy syndrome, sex. Um, and I do workshops and seminars. I do a lot of um, weekend small group workshops. And so they can just go to drglover.com and just see what's current. You know, they may be listening to this five years from now. So just go to drglover.com and see what's current. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been an amazing episode and so insightful. And I'm just so grateful that we met on the airplane uh, six months ago or whenever it was. Yeah, I, it, that was a thrill for me as well. It's still a, a story I love to tell. And thank you for inviting me to, to come uh, embarrass myself on your podcast. I, <laughs> You're welcome. I, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm glad we have so, a place you can come to embarrass yourself. <laughs> I am too. I need it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Robert. Thank you, Nathan. Well, there you have it, folks, my conversation with the wonderful Dr. Robert Glover. I hope you got a lot out of that conversation. I certainly did, and I'll be listening back to it again. You can see all of Dr. Glover's courses and content on his website at drglover.com, drglover.com. Uh, make sure to buy his book on Amazon. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And as always, I would love it if you could subscribe on iTunes, give this show a rating, and share it and like it around on Facebook and all the social media. And I'll be back next week with episode number 14 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Thank you.